Welcome to the Awaken Podcast. At Awaken Church, we are passionate about wrestling with and being unraveled by the Christian scriptures. Ideally, we do this together around the table in the neighborhood of Bones. As we see it, Jesus has invited all of us to encounter him in a diverse community and participate with him in a mission of loving our neighbors. Uh, before I speak, I just am introducing a, a short video clip I'm going to show you. Uh, the fellow speaking is um, Walter Brueggemann. Uh, I'm a huge fan. I kind of get made fun of that by some of my uh, colleagues at Ambrose about that. He's a very prolific writer. He's written like 130 books, like five since COVID began. And I try to keep up. I can't. I've read most of them, but I can't. I humbly confess that 8 to 10% of every sermon is plagiarized from a Brueggemann book. Um, I feel like I get the rights to that, but I, but I don't. So um, he's an Old Testament scholar, not a preacher, not a theologian. He's an Old Testament scholar. He knows what it is to dwell in the uncomfortable place. And in this um, video, he's asked, um, what do you do with the violence in the Old Testament? And his answer will probably be provocative and shocking and a little bit uncomfortable. Um, but I've listened to this maybe 40 times, and I often just cry while hiding in what I call blanket town. Um, <clears throat> because I'm reminded of how complex scripture is. And anytime you try and put God in a box, he slips through the cracks and uh, blows it open. And so you kind of are invited to stand in wonder and awe at the mystery of it all. So some words from Dr. Brueggemann. Uh, he's pretty old right now. I'm very sad about him coming to the, near the end of his life, but we don't have a lot of uh, voices of elders at Awaken Church. So I think his voice is a gift to us in many different ways. Um, and then I will come and unpack this text in numbers a bit for us. So here we go. My uh, formulation then for now is that uh, God is in recovery from violence that God has a history of uh, violence and uh, God is not recovered but he's like everybody in recovery we keep recovering and uh, we regress and I can imagine that God regresses into old patterns of violence and, uh, and intends to do better than that. Now, my, my reason for thinking that is that I think uh, we, have, we have a great desire to explain away God's violence in the Bible as though it weren't there, as though it's ideology, as though it's human projection. But if you entertain the thought that it is indeed a disclosure of God, then you have to deal with, with the claim that God has been a violent God. And uh, if you subscribe to those theories of atonement on Friday, then one might want to say that that Friday event was God's ultimate commitment of violence. Uh, and I th think we have to find better ways of talking about that. The problem with saying it's the lenses through which we see 
is that seems to me to relieve God of violence and say, oh no, it's in our perception, and that's what I don't want to do. So it, that's right. I think it's very difficult, uh, but but I think uh, if if the Bible in some way is a is a reliable disclosure of God, then God has to be held accountable for that. And that's what I think. And, uh, and, well, uh, that's exactly it. I, I think the, the lament and complaint psalms, uh, on the one hand, um, uh, plead with God to enact violence on our behalf, and on the other hand, kind of want to say to God, cut that out now. Don't, don't do that to me. Uh, and and I so so I think the the Psalms are uh, are open space between us and God uh, to say all of that about God and to God uh, and uh, and I think that the the intent of that open space between us in prayer. Uh, is that we may together arrive uh, at a better circumstance. But I don't think that God will arrive at a better circumstance without us. Because uh, I think God is, is engaged in all of that with us. So, God is sometimes coercive. Uh, and I, I think I think a case could be made that, that God is sometimes coercive and then has regret about having been coercive. Uh, the, the, the text uh, on which I stake a great deal uh, in my thinking is that text in Hosea 11 where God just goes on a rage against Israel and then all of a sudden God says, how can I give you up? How can I hand you over? How can I treat you like Sodom? What am I doing? And then God does that. And, and I just imagine, it's, it's like anybody who has teenagers. You, you, you do that and then you, and then you wish you hadn't done that. And uh, at least in Israel's poetic imagination, God does that too. The Hebrew word for the book of Numbers, the name of Numbers in the Hebrew Bible is Bamidvar, meaning in the wilderness. When you read Numbers, it feels like you are in the wilderness. It's sort of winding and there's random texts kind of woven throughout and you feel a little lost and scared and nervous and you want to complain and rip out the pages and throw it down. And I think that's the point. I think the Hebrew writers are very much trying to pull you into what it means to be in the wilderness a bit. Um, but it's a very difficult place to be. Nobody chooses to be in the wilderness. <clears throat> um, and not many of us in, in my generation choose to be in the Old Testament. And I think uh, there's work for us to do. Reading the Old Testament is meant to be weird. It is. Dallas preached uh, two Sundays ago about Miriam's leprosy. And it was a weird text. I sat in, in the, the pew, in the chair, and I knew what he was preaching on. I, I, 
I, you know, I read his notes, I coached him through, it was his first kind of main big sermon, and I was very proud of him, and I remember in the text, though, if you noticed, you probably did if you were here, on the screen, there were some passages where I think he kind of read quickly, <laughs> and then to get to a, a better one, and there was a moment in all of us, I think, where you were like, Ugh. what? What do you mean a father spit on his daughter's face? I'll, I'll read you the text, and it was just weird, and none of us wanted to linger there. <clears throat> none of us knew what to kind of do with it. And so I think the text itself um, is a bamidvar. Uh, the text itself is a place of anxiety and fear, a place of life and death. And I don't think, um, just like the folks in the wilderness in the book of Numbers, um, they, could, they would not survive if they did not have a deep trust in one another. And I think that's true for us, the readers of this text. The wilderness, if you read along in Numbers, is a place of life and death. There is no comfortable cruise control. Nobody just goes along for the ride. Uh, you don't invite your friends to come with you into the wilderness. Um, there's no neutral, there's no go with the flow. The wilderness is a place for telling the truth. It's a place for telling truths we don't want to tell. Truth about death and violence, hatred. Truth about our own fear, our own doubts, our anger, our urgency. And it ultimately is a place to tell the truth about God's role in our life. The role God has played that we have not uh, embraced. When I was a kid, <clears throat> um, okay, I'm gonna set this image and I think, I hope you all know what I'm talking about. Have you ever been to the Calgary Stampede Parade? Downtown Calgary, I've been many times. I grew up in Oak Tokes, there was a big parade in Oak Tokes. I've also been to the Bonas Parade lots of times. I'm sad that it's been two summers without it. But have you ever noticed that person who's in every parade, uh, probably every Alberta parade, I don't know if every parade in the world has horses, but there's a lot of horses in Alberta parades, right? Especially the Calgary Stampede Parade downtown, it's just like tons of horses. But horses don't really know they're in a parade, and horses poop a lot. And then it's smelly, and then the, the, you know, you're marching, so imagine being the guy marching and there's a horse in front of you and he poops, you gotta just march right through the poop. You don't get to like step out of it because it's all kind of choreographed. So there's a guy, uh, a few young people who are part of the parade, but they play this secret role. I don't know if you've noticed them, I think they're hilarious. They're my favorite part of a parade. The horse poops and they run out from the sidelines and quickly scoop it up and run back. And you're meant to, the whole point is to say, nothing to see here folks. Horses don't poop, there's no poop in the parade. And this kid is hired to like go in and out really quick. Don't disrupt the parade and no one's supposed to even know you're there. I think most of my life as a Christian, I saw myself as that kid in the parade. I don't know if you relate. My special job was to be God's pooper scooper, to protect God, to defend God's honor, to protect God's good reputation, and ultimately to follow him around and clean up his mess. That's what it meant to be an apologist. What, there's no poop. Someone says, that's poop, that looks like poop, smells like poop. No, actually, because of the ancient historical context, uh, what you see here is fertilizer. And I would protect God's reputation. I wanted to be an apologist. When I was about nine years old, I wrote out by hand the whole book of Joel and gave it to my neighbor, who was also like 10 years old, and his name was Joel. And I believe that if he read the book of Joel, if you've ever read the minor prophet Joel, it is not the gate entry into Christianity. It is not. But in my mind, it was the word of God, and it would kind of flow into his bloodstream and save him. And so this was, a, I also would write little sermons and, and Bible verses and climb to the tallest point of the playground on a windy day and release them in the wind. And they would make it about 
a hundred feet away maybe, and I was scattering seeds like the generous sower. And I knew some of those bits of paper would land on rocky soil, <laughs> and some would land in rain gutters, but perhaps some would be planted in someone's heart. Um, I'm not sure if you're catching my drift here, but I was a lonely child. I was homeschooled. Uh, off and on, my parents would kind of um, switch from being super conservative to angry at the church, and so I've lived in both worlds of like, kind of more partying and we don't believe in God to like, we don't wear pants because girls should wear skirts. Um, I've been in both worlds and so there was a lot of like kind of uh, change. And I was lonely. I had no friends. Um, I've lived right beside a playground and I would play there all the time and I just imagined that, well, I don't have any friends, but that's okay, God's my friend. And God was my companion and my playmate and at like eight or nine or 10 years old, I could just pray and talk to God and I promised um, that I would be God's best friend forever. And so I signed up to play that part in the big parade of life. When I was eight years old, my parents gifted me with a puppy. It was the greatest day of my life. His, he was a little Yorkshire Terrier. His name was Dudley. They gifted him to me in like a little dog dish because he was so tiny. And the idea, my parents were worried, and Kayla doesn't have any friends, and maybe this little puppy would really be her companion. Um, and I loved Dudley. I thought I could train him to be a super dog because at the st to Stampede, I went to the parade and super dogs. <laughs> and I thought super dogs was the coolest thing ever and my little Yorkshire Terrier would be a world champion. Um, and so I played with him and I loved that little buddy. But uh, less than a year into owning him, I was camping with my family and I really liked reading and I was in my tent reading one of the Sweet Valley High novels. There's hundreds of them. Um, and I loved them. And while I was reading in my tent, I was neglecting my little puppy, Dudley, and my grandmother, um, bless her heart, had no idea, but as she was driving away from the campsite, um, she ran my dog over. Um, and at eight years old, I could not imagine a greater sorrow. I was wailing. I was running through the trees, just snot and tears through my face, through my eyes, and you know what I cried out in my angst? I'm never reading Sweet Valley High again. It was Sweet Valley High's fault that I wasn't playing with my puppy. Why was I reading this stupid book? And I ripped up all my Sweet Valley High books and swore to never read again, which I was eight. Um, I started reading again. But I really felt guilty that I didn't protect my dog. And I remember a prayer a few years later promising that I would do a better job protecting God than I did my puppy. I would clean up after God and make sure nobody could ever say anything bad about God. And so you would catch me downtown or catch me on a bus and I'd be convincing people of all of the beauty and majesty of God and whenever they were like, yeah, but what about this poop? I'd be like, nope, and I'd fight them for it. <clears throat> and what I realized as I grew up, if you want to protect God, if you really, really, really want to protect God and protect God's reputation, you should do everything in your power to keep people from the Old Testament. That's the, the one thing. People are like, oh, you're an Old Testament scholar. And immediately they want to know, how do you deal with all that violence? How do you deal with Joshua and genocide? How do you explain all of the people um, who get killed and all of the bad people who are allowed to live? How do you deal with the Old Testament? And I had lots of great ways I could do it. Here's a few. How do you deal with genocide in Joshua and Akela? One, well, they were evil people. They deserved it. I don't understand how they could be evil. I don't, it's an ancient thing, but they must have been really evil and they must have deserved it. Even the children? Well, yes, even the children. Because, and then my next line would be something like, God's ways are higher than my ways and God's understanding is higher than mine, so who am I to question God? And maybe God knew something about why those children were evil 
and, and that's okay. Or I went the Calvinist route for a few years and said, well, all of us deserve to be tortured and killed, and it's only by grace that any of us are still alive. Praise God. It's a miracle. Um, and then a classic, I don't know if you're familiar with this one, was the anti-Semitic uh, way of cleaning up after God's mess and saying, God didn't really do any of those violent things. The, the Jews just thought God did those violent things, and that's just the Jewish take on sort of why Joshua conquered Canaan or whatnot, and you'd kind of be like, it's not really what happened, but this is what the Jewish people thought happened. Okay. Um, and then obviously uh, what is the easiest way to kind of protect people from the God of the Old Testament is to say that uh, Jesus is the corrective. Um, Jesus is the word of God, not the Bible. And so we ought to unhitch uh, Jesus from the Old Testament. And read the Old Testament, um, if you do it all, just through the lens of Jesus. And all you got to know about the Old Testament is this. Love God, love your neighbor. <laughs> the whole Bible, Old Testament, can be summed up in that, so we don't have to linger there. Uh, and then... I don't know if you can think of any others off the top of your head of ways we have kind of explained away the violence in the Old Testament. Um, can you think of any? I know one I knew was to say, well, all of the people who were killed in the Old Testament, like the children or the pregnant women or the you know, disabled people, well, when, as soon as they died, they were probably immediately swept up into heaven. And so really, what is a, a few months of like collective trauma in light of eternity in paradise? And so I kind of always could find a way to make it make sense. And I don't know, I, I went and did a master's in the Old Testament and I kind of was like, you know, if God didn't want poop in the parade, I think God would stop pooping in the parade. And maybe I should just sit down and be part of the parade or watch the parade and not be constantly running out to clean up all these little messes that I think are messes watching a few of my loved ones um, suffer uh, sorrow beyond um, what I experienced losing my dog, watching injustice, watching um, divorce, watching um, horrible sicknesses um, take people's lives. I kind of got to this crossroads in my faith, and I hope you don't mind, I'm, like right now you all are probably like, what is happening right now? This is a sermon on like why not to believe in God. It's not. But I think it's the wilderness means we have to push to the edges of this space, right? I realized a crisis happens. A horrible, painful thing happens in someone's life. Aren't there only two options? Either God could have stopped it, but didn't want to. And that's the traditional Christian answer. He didn't want to because he was building your character, teaching you perseverance, teaching you faith, equipping you so that when someone else comes and suffers in that same way 10 years later, you'll be there to walk beside them. He, he could have stopped the crisis, the pain, the suffering, but he didn't want to. He knows the plans he has for you to give you, I, I don't know, like we, that's one. The other option must be God wanted to stop it with every fiber of his being but couldn't. And I don't know if that is a better alternative. Um, and that one, though, though that one is cure, I, I don't think we've explored that one very well as evangelicals in the West. Um, I think we could make space for that, that God's kingdom is not of this world and a king only reigns in his realm. And so maybe there are maybe there's a God who's weeping, snotty-nosed and teary-eyed, um, right alongside us, uh, saying, "Why, uh, angry that His kingdom is only here in part and not yet in full?" And, and there's mystery in that, perhaps I don't know. But the wilderness is a place for these questions, to tell the truth, 
to explore, to say, wait a minute, why am I the one protecting God? Isn't God supposed to protect me? There's this text in Numbers, um, Dallas read it. I will just um, remind you, because I know all of you were like, what do we do with that? I want to talk about that, but I also don't skip past it. Um, in Numbers uh, 14, here we go. Oh, no, I went too far. Uh, Numbers 12. While they were at Hazaroth, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had indeed married a Cushite woman. And they said, has the Lord only spoken through you? Has he not spoken through us? Um, now Moses was a very humble man, more than anyone else on the face of the earth. Um, and then the Lord told Moses to gather Miriam and, and Aaron, and then Miriam, not Aaron, interestingly, um, is afflicted with less skin disease that, that's like leprosy. Um, and then uh, God says, why were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. And then when the cloud went away, yeah, Miriam had become leprous, and she was um, white all over. And then Aaron and Moses are both like, oh, no, Lord, please heal her. They're really scared of like, oh, we didn't actually think you would hurt Miriam. Like, she just actually has a genuine concern about this marriage because it's kind of random for the wilderness, and I already have a wife. Um, and I probably didn't get her blessing. And there's a whole bunch there. Like, you can see Moses and Aaron are like, wait, what? God, too far, too far. And then God's response seems outrageously harsh. Um, and I know you don't want me to read it, and I know you've all been thinking about it for three weeks. He says, um, uh... If her father had spit in her face, would she not bear her shame for seven days? So let her be shut out of the camp, excommunicated, exiled for seven days, and then she'll be brought back again. I'm like, wait, can we stop about why are fathers spitting in their daughter's face? Why is this an option? Why is this a thing? What? Well, that's just how it was back then. Why? Why was it that way for God? Why is God like, well, just like when a father spits in his daughter's face, so I've spit in Miriam's face, and so she needs to go away for seven days. I don't know how to scoop, I don't have a bag big enough to scoop that poop. There's too much. And then there's this beautiful, beautiful thing, and I think Dallas handled it masterfully, um, where then, then, then God kind of is ready to move on, and it says the people uh, refused to set out until Miriam was restored. To say, we're not going without her, God. She belongs to us. Whoa, that's wild. <laughs> uh, and this is, that was the first uh, sermon in the text of Numbers. And then last week, it, I won't read through the text, but there was more weird stuff of like, this entire generation is going to die in the wilderness because you doubted me. I mean, in their defense, like they don't have any weapons, they don't eat any protein, uh, and there's a fortified nation you're telling them to go invade. I mean, really? But, but because they doubted God, they are going to die in the wilderness, and then their little children will be the ones who will go and taste the milk and, and, and the honey of the promised land. Um, and it's weird. It's hard. And the text today is, is, is even weirder, especially in light of um, what, what some of the stuff in the news in Canada right now. So if you're going to go in the wilderness, if we're going to, as a community, enter the wilderness together, I say this in my, my heart of hearts is um, the wilderness is a place for truth-telling, it's a place for crying out, why would you spit in your, her face? Why would you let a whole generation die in the wilderness? Wait, well, we're here, God, and, and we have your attention. Why did you ask Abraham to slay his son and you didn't stop until the blade was at his throat? Why did you abandon Hagar and Ishmael? Why would you wait 400 years to send Moses to rescue the enslaved people and not like, you know, three days or something? Why genocide? 
Why fire and brimstone? Why turn Lot's wife to a pillar of salt for looking back at her homeland? And, and, and what about outside of the text? Why heal some and let others die? Why strike some down but let murderers and violent people live and walk freely in the streets? Why infertility for some couples and, and teen pregnancy for others? Why? This isn't fair. This doesn't make sense to us. And perhaps that's the beginning of the wilderness journey, is to ask those questions. So if the Bible is this invitation to look at the text and don't look away, I think when you find that voice within you that says, wait a minute, I have a, I have a complaint I would like to file with God, now you're in the wilderness. And that's a sacred place to be. So. Here's what happens in number 16. And I've read this text so many times, and there's so many sermons I would have loved to preach out of this text. I'll tell you in a minute, and you'll be like, yeah, that would have been great. Toxic, <laughs> but great. Um, so in number 16, so just to place this, they've been in the wilderness not very long, like a year. Um, Miriam had the skin disease, and then the very next thing, um, Moses sends 12 leaders out to spy on the promised land for 40 days. They come back, two of them are like, it's great, it's awesome, we should waste no time, let's go there now, God is with us. Ten of them are like, it's also terrifying, and we do not stand a chance. I think we should maybe not go. God gets angry, kills the ten, and says, oh, you think that you'll, you'll die? Well then, die. I promise, in the next 38 years, all of you are going to die in the wilderness, and the two who had faith and all of your children will get to go into that promised land one day. And then immediately after this happened, everyone's terrified, and a few of them gather together and try and take the promised land anyway. Like, pfft, yeah, right, never mind. We're not dying in the wilderness, thank you very much. It's either Egypt or promised land, not here. And they flee and try and go fight and enter the land and claim it, and they're all killed by the Canaanites, and they die. So then here we are in number 16. Another story of a group of leaders in the camp going to Moses being like, this is just your weekly reminder that we are not happy with this situation. <laughs> It goes like this. Korah, son of Izhar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, along with Dathan and Abiram, son of Eliab and On, son of Peleth, descendants of Reuben. So Levi and Reuben are like historical um, ancestral leaders. Levi the priest, Reuben the kings. Um, they took 250 Israelite men, leaders of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men, and they confronted Moses, <laughs> as would I. They assembled against Moses and against Aaron, and they said this, this beautiful thing. And I'm like, wait, can we talk about this? This is what they said. They said, Moses, you have gone too far. All of this congregation are holy, are we not? Did God not save all of us from Egypt? We're all holy. Every one of us. And the Lord is among us. So why then do you exalt yourself above the assembly of the Lord? Like, who died and made you king? Why do you get to decide? When Moses heard it, he fell on his face. And I don't know if it was like, God's going to be really, really mad when he hears you say that. Please, God, don't hurt these people. Or if he's just like, I did not sign up for this role. Why are you always complaining? I, but he fell on his face. It seems very uh, uh, harsh. He, he receives this. This is painful. He doesn't defend himself or be like, listen, God found me in a burning bush. I was a fugitive. I was a shepherd. I was totally happy to live all the rest of my life with poor and my kids in the Midianite hills. I, I did not sign up for this. He doesn't do that. He says, in the morning, the Lord will make known who is his and who is holy and who will be allowed to approach him. 
The one whom he will choose, he will allow to approach him. Uh, and then uh, in verse 15, it says, Moses was very angry and said to the Lord, pay no attention to their offering. I have not taken one donkey from any of them. I have not harmed any of them. Um, and then uh, the Lord spoke to Moses in verse 20 and to Aaron saying, separate yourselves from this congregation like you and Aaron and Miriam, I suppose, and, and separate yourself from everybody so that I might consume them <laughs> in a moment, destroy them all. But Aaron and Moses fell on their faces and said, oh, please, God, don't do that. Oh, God, their exact prayer, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one person sin and you become angry with the whole congregation? Like, we're really only mad at Korah. <laughs> and the Lord spoke to, to Moses saying, okay, Fine then, say to the congregation, get away from the dwellings of Korah and Dathan and Abiram, these three men. So Moses got up and went to Dathan and Abiram, the elders of Israel followed him, and he said to the congregation, and I imagine, I don't know if any of you ever watched the um, historically inaccurate um, history channel show Vikings, but it sounds like something um, Lagatha would say. Pop culture reference going over here? No, no, not really. Thank you, Darcy. I don't really like that show, but I liked Lagatha, so, okay. He said to the congregation, turn away from the tents of these wicked men and touch nothing of theirs or you will be swept away for all their sins. So they got away from the dwelling. Everybody backs up. What's going to happen? Everybody backs up away from the dwellings of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the entrance of their tents together with their wives, their children, and their little ones. And Moses said, this is how you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works. It has not been of my own accord. If these people die a natural death, or if a natural fate comes upon them, then that means the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new, and the ground opens its mouth beneath them and swallows them whole with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. And as soon as he finished speaking all these words, the ground under them was split apart. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up along with their households. Everyone who belonged to Korah and all their goods and all that belonged to them went down alive to the pit. The earth closed over them and they were no more. And then all of the Israelites flipped out fled, crying, the earth will surely swallow us too. Fair, fair, I would probably think that. And then fire came out from the Lord, consumed the 250 men, and then the Lord went to Moses and was like, I've chosen you, and um, that's, uh, you know, the beginning of God killing off this generation. The earth swallowed them whole. And um, so I say, let's look at this text for a minute and not look away. You know what I wish I could have done? Oh, and I felt like I really could have. It could have been like, you know what? Like I could have done it two ways that would be really helpful. One is put yourself in Moses' shoes. You're Moses. And guess what? The God of angel armies is on your side. And anybody that opposes you will be swallowed whole by God. Do not despair. God is with you. That, I could have preached that. God is with you. God will destroy your enemies. <laughs> I could have preached it like, I'm Moses, and you're the congregation, and none of you should ever question me, the pastor, because I'm God's chosen leader, right? I could have done that. Oh. I wish. That would have been so great. 
Yeah, right? If anybody criticizes me, uh, you know, keep the elder's email out of your, out of your mind. Uh, if you criticize me, uh, you know, I'm God's chosen one. That doesn't really work because A, um, the congregation didn't vote for Moses. <laughs> they voted for me. <laughs> I was also interviewed like four times and uh, it would be really toxic if I did that, I think. And I think that um, Jesus criticized the temple and also said that his body is the temple. So I think Jesus made sacred space for people to complain. <laughs> and that is way more pastoral. And uh, I'm, not, I'm not Moses in this story. I'm, I'm not. I don't know if any of us um, are. Um, so I'm not going to do that. And I'm also not going to do that um, if we resist you know, God's chosen leaders, the earth will open up and swallow us. Um, because a few months ago in Canada, uh, the unmarked graves of 215 children were found in Kamloops. So I'm not sure celebrating the earth swallowing people in unmarked graves is um, really the conclusion, the, the thing we should celebrate. In fact, when I read this text and I hold the news um, about these unmarked graves in Canada, in the other hand, I realize just as Abel's blood cried out to God from the soil, so have the blood of these 215 children cried out. The earth has told our secrets. I wonder if the earth doesn't also tell the secrets and demand we ask God questions about Korah's wives and little ones. The earth, the land, is always on God's side. Though we try to hide our secrets, bury them in the soil, um, the land tells on us. And so I have to stop and ask if the blood of those folks and the millions more hidden in secret graves on this planet, uh, if the land will tell their secrets, and if God will come and hold uh, us to account, and if we could, I, I, you know, it's there. And so, I'm not standing up right now trying to be for you Job's wife. If you don't know if you understand that reference, but Job experiences great suffering, loses everything, and then his wife shows up and says, curse God and die. Like, just get it over with. Like, how much more can you bear? You're just one man. This is horrible. Let's just admit that, you know, God's been awful to you. Curse God and die. And she's not, she doesn't get a shining review in the text, even though she lost 10 children and everything she owned and loved as well. Um, I'm not trying to stand up and be like, we should curse God and die. That's not what I'm doing. I'm not trying to be Job's wife. Um, however, I'm trying to draw our attention to Job. <laughs> if you've ever read the book of Job, he has no problem yelling into the void, saying, fight me, you coward. Job does that. He says, this is not fair. This is unjust. I've done nothing to deserve this, and I demand an answer from you. And finally, God shows up, and he doesn't answer Job at all. And, and there's this kind of text where Job's like, I spoke once, I won't speak again. Um, and then we kind of read into that, this like Job being like, I'm so sorry, I shouldn't have questioned you. You are God, I am just a worm. Um, but that's not what he says. <laughs> Job's uh, answer is like, I've spoken once, I won't speak again. As if to say, I will not repeat myself. Answer. Answer for what you have done. Where are my children? Where are my belongings? I've done nothing but serve you and love you and follow you around and clean up your poop my whole life. Answer. And so I think maybe the Old Testament, this wild place, is a place to face that part of you that's angry. It, what I love about the Old Testament is side by side, you have stories of people saying, where are you? And other stories. People fight God 
God is revealed as one who can feel regret in the Old Testament, as one who can repent in the Old Testament, as one who can change his mind, who can be talked down, as one who can be unraveled by his own jealousy, who can feel abandoned, and also as one who can part seas to redeem the oppressed, as one who can open the earth to swallow his enemies, and also as one who brings people back from the grave. The whole book of Psalms, the biggest chunk of text in the entire Old Testament is a collection of anger and lament and begging for mercy and celebration and praise all together in one authoritative text. At the heart of the Old Testament and at the heart of our Christian faith is the story of Jacob wrestling with God. This is where the word Israel comes from. Jacob is in the wilderness. His brother Esau is ahead of him, wants to kill him as far as he knows. And his father-in-law Laban is behind him, wants to kill him as far as he knows. And here he is in the wilderness, can't go back, can't go forward. And this is not, God doesn't meet him and hold his hand and give him hugs and tell him it'll be okay. God attacks him and tries to kill him. And Jacob, gloves are off. I, I don't know sports references, it's dangerous, but I think hockey players take their gloves off when they fight. Do they, do they take off their own jersey or the other person's jersey? I just picture this like, jersey's off, gloves are off, and Jacob's like, all right, God, do you wanna do this? Yeah, let's do this. I've been fighting people all my life. And he fights them, and he wins, and God says, whoa, please let me go. And Jacob says, no, not until you bless me. Give me a new name, a new beginning. I will not stop fighting you. And a lot of um, Christians don't know, the same story actually happened in Moses' life. Um, God attacks Moses and tries to kill him. It's a weird and wild story. I've never heard a sermon on it, but I love it. So I'm just going to read it and then walk away. I'm not going to unpack it. Figure if God doesn't want to unpack it, then I don't have to either. In Exodus 4, Moses is in Midian, but he's just had a conversation with a burning bush that changes his life. And he goes to Jethro in Exodus 4. Um, Beginning in verse 18, it says, Moses went back to his father-in-law, Jethro, and said, please, let me go back to my kindred in Egypt and see whether they are still living. Um, a lot of people don't notice because we were really shaped by Prince of Egypt, not the Bible, but bless you, me too, no regrets. Um, Moses is 80 years old at this instant. 80 years, he's lived a long life. He he's, he's, has a happy little life for himself. He went to his father-in-law, Jethro, and said, please let me go back to my kindred in Egypt and see whether they are still living. And Jethro said to Moses, good, go in peace. And then the Lord said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt, for all those who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and put them on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt, and Moses carried the staff of God in his hand. And then the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have put in your power, and I will harden his heart so that he will not let his people go. Uh, what? Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord Israel, uh, this was the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. I said to you, let my son go that he may worship me, but you refuse to let my son go, so now I will kill your son. Okay. Moses is like, what is about to happen? Okay. On the way, this is the same phrase as what happens in Jacob's life, and you've maybe never noticed this, I'll read it slowly. Uh, Exodus 4, 24. On the way, at a place where they spent the night, the Lord met Moses and tried to kill him. Exodus 4:24. But Zipporah, his wife, quickly took a flint knife and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses with it and said, Truly you are a bridegroom of blood to me. 
So the Lord let him alone. It was then, she said, a bridegroom of blood by circumcision. And then they continued on. I mean, David and I have had like weird things in our marriage, but at no point was I like, hang on, I'll be right back, I need a foreskin. It's a weird story. Can we just name it? It's in the Bible. It's the Holy Word of God. This is the Word of God. Zipporah steps in with a knife, something to Moses' son, touches Moses. It has to do with blood and, and circumcision and something. Um, it turns God away, but it's this moment of like, why did God try and kill Moses? Is it because he wasn't circumcised? Um, is it because, why did God try and kill Moses? Perhaps knowing that your God has also tried to kill you is part of what it means, uh, to, part of what it takes to say yes to the call on your life. Moses knows the profound mystery about going fist to fist with God. So does Miriam. Scott spat in my face once. It's a story she had to tell. Jacob, well, he fought me all night once, but I didn't let him go. These are the stories that we desperately need. Perhaps going fist to fist with God is the beginning of a pilgrimage, of a new identity. Perhaps this is what is meant by the sword that pierced Mary's heart. Perhaps we will discover together as a church that if we decide to follow Jesus, we might, and we will, get to a place in the wilderness called Golgotha. And from there, we might find ourselves crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When we talk about Good Friday, sometimes we frame it as Jesus is God's one and only son, and God was filled with wrath and very angry, and he just wanted to smite somebody. And so Jesus quickly stepped in to take that beating on our behalf, and then God got all that anger out of his system and was like, Whew, you folks are lucky. <laughs> and sometimes we frame the atonement theories that way, right? And we miss out on that part where Jesus is God. The same God that we just read about in Exodus. Um, and perhaps it's the case um, in John's gospel, um, Jesus says, it is finished. And maybe what he means is, I'm not going to be violent anymore. <laughs> I'm not sure. Brueggemann says that's not satisfying to him. It is pretty, it's pretty great. Um, I think it's a fair place to be but if Jesus is God and the same Jesus that was crucified and the same sorry the same God that was crucified and the same God that could cry out paradoxically my God my God why um, then perhaps it's okay and maybe necessary for us to do the same because I am a Christian I will say this to you I am a Christian I'm not ashamed of that title I'm a Christian I'm also an evangelical I am which means um, I have a Bible at home with a handle on it <laughs> The Bible is the center of my faith for me. The scriptures point me to the table, a table in the wilderness. And they show me that there's a seat there just for me. And they show me that I can pull up with bloodied feet and swollen eyes and a snotty nose and a hoarse voice and I can look God right in the eye and say, listen, I'm not going to protect you anymore. I'm not going to lie about my fear and my hurt and my anger. I have a bone to pick with you. Fight me. And the scriptures reveal to me a God and this is my sanctified imagination, whose fingers are stained yellow, taking a drag from his home-rolled cigarette made of tobacco and sage and peppermint, a twinkle in his eye, and says to me, I thought you'd never ask. Fight me. Explain yourself. 
fight me. I thought you'd never ask. You keep following behind me, trying to justify and clean this all up. I've been waiting for you to look me in the eye and say, fight me. Let's do this together. And I might be touched by that for a moment. Well, just so you know, I'm not going easy on you, God. I'm not going to walk away. A lot of my friends, they get to the messy bits of scripture and they, they walk away. Or they just try and clean it up. And I think, what if um, I don't do either of those? And I stay and I fight and I wrestle and I say, I will follow you. I believe in you. These are the, this is what gives me life. Um, where else would I go? Thinking of John 6. Um, but I will not uh, let you go. I will not let you off the hook. I want answers. And if that takes 40 years um, in the wilderness place, then God bless the wilderness. In conclusion, David told me the story. I don't know if you know um, David. Uh, works currently a new job. He's a registered therapist at a rehab facility in the wilderness by Nordig. Uh, and he works with young uh, men with addiction, which means young men with trauma. And he had a session, I got his permission to share, share the story, it made me cry instantly, with this young guy who's been uh, struggling with addiction for like most of his life. And this guy is at rock bottom and has many thoughts of ending his life. And uh, David asked him about spirit and, and spirituality and, and religion and sort of what, you know, like spirituality and psychotherapy are becoming more commonly associated. And uh, the guy said to David, I don't have spirit. I don't have religion. I've been, you know, he had some derogatory words for himself, basically to say completely unworthy of all of that. God doesn't know I exist. God hates me. I'm a bad man. I can never go to church. All those things. And then David um, said to him, do you know what I think the spirit is? And, and, you know, the guy's kind of waiting for like a sermon. And David says, I think it's that thing within you that wants to live. It's that thing within you that wants you to heal, work it out, become whole. That thing within you that somehow got you to enroll in a 90-day program. The Spirit brought you here, brother. Don't you dare think that God um, has abandoned you. If anything, God's been waiting for you to turn and look at him and say, Why? The Spirit's what brought you here. That thing within you that wants to live, to recover, to heal, to wrestle through this dying place and make it out the other side. Um, as a Christian and as your pastor, I believe in the incarnation, that Jesus is God. I believe in a God who can weep and die. I believe in a life force that rises up from the grave as well. I believe that that thing within you that wants to live and wants to fight, um, it's an invitation to the wilderness. And so I don't know about this, uh, the, the earth opening up and swallowing people. Uh, but I think there's something in that story, and I, I want to resist every part of me to, to clean it up. Um, but maybe I could sit there and say, I would like, I have a bone to pick with you, God. I don't understand this. Um, because Moses will also complain about God, and the people will complain, and God will complain, and maybe the wilderness is a place to be honest with our complaints. And that is the sacred work of healing. 
That is what the word Israel means, wrestles with God. That is what drove Jesus to cry out in Gethsemane, please take this cup from me. That is what led Jesus to cry out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, and on that Easter Sunday, to breathe his spirit upon those terrified young men who would take his mission and his gospel to the world. And so um, a prayer I offer um, our wilderness God on this Sunday in October, and then Dave is going to come lead us in a time of communion. This is a prayer written by <clears throat> Walter Brueggemann <clears throat> called A People with Many Secrets. And it goes like this. Please pray with me. You are the God from whom no secret can be hid. And we are a people with many secrets that we want to tell for the sake of our lives that we dare not to tell because they are deep and painful. But they are our secrets and they count for much. They are our truth rooted deep in our lives and you are the God of all truth. So now we bid you heed our truth about which we will not bear false witness. The truth of our grief unresolved, of our pain unacknowledged, the truth of fear too childlike, the truth of hate as powerful as it is deep, the truth of being taken advantage of, of being used and manipulated and slandered. We trust the great truth of your wondrous love, but we will not sit still for it until you hear us. Our truth heard by you is what will make us free. So be the God of all truth, even ours. We pray in the name of Jesus, who on judgment day comes like a bloodied lamb to wipe away every tear and shut the mouth of death forever. We pray in the name of Jesus, your best kept secret of hurt. Amen.